All right, so I've got a name for the podcast. You ready for this? I am. It's called Let's Talk About Plagues. Because since the very first time we sat down to record this, one thing Brandon has wanted to talk about is plagues in fiction, and we have always put it off. What? I didn't add that one to yes, the list. You no. did add that to the list. You added that to the list. I did not add that to you the list. You totally added that to the list because you said, I want to talk about plagues. I did not say plagues. What did you say? This I is on know. here for you. This is not on here for me. Brandon wants to talk about plagues, and he doesn't want to admit it, and I find that suspicious. I have nothing to say about plagues. You were the one that was like, I, I think that there's an interesting thing to say. And then I said, it's topical because we just suffered a plague. And so I added it to the list, but I added the list because you wanted to talk about plagues in fiction. I don't remember wanting to talk about plagues. <laughs> so every week we've been like, should we talk about plagues? And, and I'm like, both of us are, neither of us are excited about it because we both think it's the other person's idea. Yeah, I always pitched it back to you, said, do you want to? Okay, I've got a title for the podcast. <laughs> Okay, fine. We'll talk about plagues because I'm a good friend. <laughs> uh, why don't we just talk about the thing we want to talk about, which is zombie movies. Hey, let's talk about zombie <laughs> movies. That's way more exciting. Before we talk about zombie movies, uh -huh. there was a food heist in Ooh. the news today. Mm -hmm. Okay. This one happened in New York. And heist, I think, is is misapplied here because it was okay. not really a heist. But what you got an was, alert right before. I did get an alert. Yeah. Mm -hmm. On my phone, because I have a Google alert set up for food heist, there was a dumpling shop called Xi'an in, I want to say Manhattan, where two drunk dudes broke in after hours and on camera made themselves a bunch of dumplings and then ate them and then left. And apparently they were horrible. They didn't know how to make dumplings. They screwed everything up. They made a giant mess. But the dumpling restaurant was kind of cool about the whole thing and you know, made fun of it and made jokes about it on Instagram and stuff like that. There you go. That's your that, food heist. For I the would day. count that as a food heist. Yeah. It's a really unusual one. We'll call it a botched heist. Yeah. Because for all we know, there was an entire other team off screen. There was the guy in the chair. There was the hacker. There was the con artist out in front keeping people away. No, 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 no. I think that you can have two drunk idiots be your team. <laughs> So here's an interesting idea. You know, we can't call the podcast Two Drunk Idiots because we neither of us drink. Here's an interesting concept about storytelling that has always stuck with me. I'm going to butcher this story so somebody can maybe find the actual story, but I'm going to give you the idea of it. Okay. And this was a court case about parody where a person had done a parody of a property, you know, a, a jokey joke thing. And was being sued for copyright infringement instead, or trademark dispute, or whatnot. And in the end, like part of the big defense was that it just wasn't funny. Like, this is not funny. It doesn't count as parody. And what the judge's determination was the person's competence and whether they're good at narrative or not should not be the deciding line, whether it's legal under the law, which is really fascinating. Because it is a really great thing to, to distinguish between that authors who are really good at things get away with a lot more, for instance, in parody. Mm -hmm. And in, in a lot of things, narratively, I mean, we probably don't want to go there, but in talking about delicate topics, if you're a skilled writer, then you can do this in a way that an unskilled writer is going to draw a lot of ire and attention. And this is because an unskilled writer is probably going to be legitimately harmful yeah. When a skilled writer yeah. is not. But your skill as a writer or as a storyteller or things 
has a lot of influence over these aspects of how something is viewed, not just quality wise, but in other regards, such as is it parody or not? Yeah. And that's an interesting line to draw and an interesting way to phrase it because parody has always stood apart from just plagiarism because it is funny. Yes. And for a judge to step in and say, well, actually, if you're trying to be funny and you just suck at it, you should. Yeah. You should have the same legal protections. Yeah, that's really interesting to me. But more than anything, what this is drawing to mind is, is this the literary version of the Reddit rules of dating? Which is rule right. one, be attractive. Rule yeah. two, don't be unattractive. Yes, it is. Is this the is. same thing? It is the like, same if thing. If you are good looking or talented or whatever, you can get away with stuff. I think that you can in narrative. And the parody one is a good example. If you're legitimately funny, I think that people are going to not go after you. To the extent, if you're South Park, I think that they're just going to be like, well, it's South Park. They're really good at this. It's obviously parody. But mm-hmm. if you tried to do those same things and were bad at it, there is a difference here. Like there is indignation about the guy who taught his dog. And I'm not going to repeat what he taught the dog to be excited by. But okay. it's a racially insensitive term that the guy would speak and then the dog would get super excited. And it was an inappropriate time to be excited. You know, this guy got arrested. In the UK, again, I don't know the detail. I'm not going to get the deals exactly mm-hmm. right, but he did get arrested. And the difference between him and South Park, who has made the same joke, mm-hmm. the exact same joke, is that this guy was bad at it. The video, he didn't intend to go viral. It was for his girlfriend. It did go viral. It was this awful thing. It was probably hurtful to a bunch of people. But you could argue that the South Park joke was as hurtful to those same people because it's the exact same style of joke. Yeah. But it's done really well in context of the show. And so suddenly they get away with it. And it's it's an interesting, interesting thing that I don't know that I have answers for you. But I wanted to point yeah. out that the competence of the people pulling off a heist should not determine whether it gets whether defined or not as a it's heist. defined as a heist. Yes. Well, okay. Maybe not competence, but just mm-hmm. logistically... I think there has to be a, a specific line drawn somewhere between just a burglary and a heist. That's true. And I don't know if two people breaking in yeah, okay. makes it into a heist. Yeah, you've got a good point there. The, the heist does require planning yeah. and an intent to get away with you like know, something said, specific. Maybe they had a really great plan and they were just... Or maybe they had a terrible plan and yeah. they were drunk, but mm-hmm. maybe they had a plan, but... You know, they did carry off some dumplings inside of them. Well, now that is the movie that I want to write. Oh. Of the two drunk idiots that plan their dumpling heist for weeks. And then in the moment, they're too drunk to actually carry it out. You know, one of my favorite episodes of this that we've done just went live today. And this is the one where we talked about The Rock going on a cooking show. I know. I heard that again because I listened to the episode this morning and I'm like, dang it. We need to sell this idea. And someone in the comments, thank you for your comments, by the way, I do go through and read them, said, well, this is really just miscongeniality, right? Which I, I don't know if we brought up. But I do it, think that yeah. we, you mentioned that it was just miscongeniality. But if we didn't, this person nailed it. But even after they said it, I said, that pitch is so good, though. Miscongeniality, yeah. except it's the rock and he has to go bake. It's yeah. so easy like, to say. It's a fantastic pitch. And also, it would be a substantively different movie, right? Yes, it would be. We've talked before about how The Three Amigos is Mm -hmm. also Bugs Life and is also Galaxy Quest and is also a number of other things. Yep. They're all still good movies that deserve to exist and bring something unique to the conversation. Yeah, 
And here's the thing. I realized, maybe I'm wrong. You did just listen to it. I haven't just listened to it. Did we ever make a, can you smell what the rock is cooking joke? We did not. In that entire episode. And it was <laughs> right in front of our noses. It's because we're, we're too classy to make that joke. Except I made that joke in the comments <laughs> to this episode today when I saw it. And I'm like, oh, how did I not think of this joke? And so, yeah. Man. See, if we got Dwayne Johnson and then called the movie, Can You Smell What the Rock is Cooking? I don't know where we go from there. Uh, we, we might, if it, we pull it, we, that we off. We would fall into full-on camp at yes. that point. I do want to say that on the r slash Sanderson subreddit, someone named this show oh. The Great British Fake Off, which oh, I thought was a great the name. The Great British Fake Off. Oh, that is really solid. You know, sometimes we can be professionals in our field and still be idiots. Yes. Most of the time, I would say. That gold star yes. to you. I give an inspiration point to whoever said that. Yeah, we will Good acknowledge job. you in the film's credits if we make this film and <laughs> it actually uses that title because that is incredible. Man. Yeah. That's, yeah. Sorry, guy on the internet or person on the internet. I don't know what you are. So, zombies. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a podcast title. So, dot, dot, zombies. Dot. <laughs> what were we even going to say gonna about We were going to talk about I Am Legend. Because, we were going to talk about I Am Legend. Yeah. We, before we started recording, actually started having a really interesting conversation about I Am Legend because I didn't remember what got us onto the topic. But plagues. What we <laughs> Plagues. What eventually we got onto, which is far more interesting to me than the just plagues in general. Despite you put Brandon's it on the list. deep love for them, is that first of all, I Am Legend is a phenomenal book. It is. It won actually the Stoker Award for Best Horror Novel of the Century. They gave out a special award, and that's the one that won. It's incredibly short. It's very good, and in my opinion, is one of these that has never gotten a true or even a good adaptation. And I quibbled with that saying i think i am legend is a good movie but is it a good adaptation i don't know that i would die on that particular <laughs> hill well and see there's lots of different ways to phrase this is mm -hmm. it a good movie is it a good adaptation does it undermine the core principles of its source material yes and that's where i really want to talk well and i think that you can actually be a good adaptation that undermines the principles can of you your well, let's I, look at Starship Troopers. Okay. It's a bad adaptation. It's a terrible adaptation. Why, though? It was a successful movie that did yes. a good thing. Because if you've read the book, it is betraying the core fundamental principles of the book, and it is not including most of the scenes that are in the book that are... <laughs> we've talked about this before, haven't we? I like Starship Troopers, yes. the movie. Mm -hmm. I like Starship Troopers, the movie, more than I like Starship Troopers, the book, though I do like Starship Troopers, the book. It's just a little dry. Mm -hmm. And if you haven't read it, Starship Troopers, the book, is in many ways a manifesto, a libertarian manifesto, a sort of militarized libertarianism. And it's very much not everything that happens in a book that is a philosophy is the author's philosophy being yeah, espoused. Certainly not. But in I this hope case, not, after what I've written, people are pretty much agreed that this was indeed something Heinlein wanted to espouse. This was mm -hmm. a, a political ideology that he wanted to put forward as an interesting idea that he had thought about and he thought the world would be better. 
And the core principle of this is unless you have served in the military, you should not be able to vote. Yes. We had a writing professor in college who that was the one and only thing he had to say about Starship Troopers to, in my opinion, a hilarious degree. We would mention it in the context of something else. We're like, oh, well, in Starship Troopers, Heinlein does blah, blah, blah. And it's really interesting the way he draws out this thing. And then the teacher would go, I also find it interesting that in his book, you can't vote unless you've served in the military. Right. And there is a whole lot more to the book than that. Mm -hmm. And it is an interesting kind of look at, I mean, if you boil it down to one idea, that's the idea. There's, there's a kind of fierce libertarianism that no one should be forced to, but no one should have rights unless they are willing to put in the effort, the make the choices and things like yeah. this and, and whatnot. And that's an interesting premise. It really is. The movie was made by Paul Verhoeven. Mm -hmm. And I've heard contrasting accounts of how this happened. But some people say he just didn't care what was in the book. Some people <laughs> say he was offended by this whole concept and specifically tried to undermine what was in the book. But either way, he made a film that's fundamental tenant is anti-military, I would say. And anti-government. Anti-government and anti-jingoism mm -hmm. and kind of undermining, not kind of, directly undermining core principles of the book. Yeah. Well, first of all, yes. And what I find really interesting about that is that I also consider the movie to be fairly libertarian in a lot of ways. Yeah, it is. It but is. in very different ways, espousing yes. different aspects of it. But my argument would be that you can be a very good adaptation of something while not being faithful to it. See, And that is yeah. something that a lot of people are going to disagree with. And it Ooh. depends very much on what you are trying to provide to the audience. If you want to give the audience the same experience they got from reading the source material, then you, know, you give them Harry Potter 1 which is just the same thing reproduced. Yes. And there's a lot of play in between Harry Potter 1, which is just the exact same thing in yep. a different scene format. Scene by scene. And Starship Troopers, which is wildly different and in fact opposed to the source material. There's a huge spectrum in the middle there. And I don't know. I mean, I, I think that maybe some of our best adaptations, and maybe adaptation is the wrong word, mm -hmm. are responses to and arguments against an original idea. I would call that something different than an adaptation then. I would call it a response, right? Like the Forever War is a response to Starship Troopers. And, you know, Forever War won the Hugo Award. I'm right on that, right? That uh, Jill Haldeman's Forever War, I believe, is, is like an intentional response. It, I could be wrong. might be. Adam's going to look it up and determine. Well, and um, but there are tons of responses. I can use in my own. I've written a book called Firstborn, which is an intentional response to Ender's Game, right? Mm -hmm. And you are saying using the original source material to make a movie that's a response. I don't consider that an adaptation or a good adaptation. It is demonstrably an yeah. adaptation. Well, and, and that is the fundamental difference mm -hmm. between something like Starship Troopers and something like Forever War is... Yes. Haldeman said, oh, this is dumb. I'm going to just do it right my own way. Mm -hmm. And Verhoeven, depending on who you believe, said, I'm going to take the original and twist it to my own ends. 
twist it to show how ridiculous it is. Yeah. Yeah. I find both of those really fascinating. I agree. And I find both of those kind of equally compelling and valid as adaptations, but only one of them is legally an adaptation. And maybe you could make the argument, you are making the argument, maybe I can believe the argument that once you have signed the papers and stated your intention to adapt something that you need to be faithful to it in some way. Yeah. Maybe. Need to be? No, but to have a good adaptation, you do. Like, you've bought the rights. Do what you want with them. But at the same time, I find Starship Trooper just fascinating because there's a part of me that is nauseous by the idea of what was done there and that says you should have made a film that is a response and named it your own thing Mm -hmm. rather than taking the author's original vision and not just doing a bad job with it, intentionally mocking the original author with your creation. And I do have to admit, you know, that if I put it into context of my own art, that there's something really invasive and awful about that. If somebody said, I'm going to do an adaptation of I'm Not a Serial Killer and then make John an overtly terrible person and have him, you know, murdering his family or something like that, really opposed to the character fundamentally misunderstanding or misrepresenting what I was trying to do, yes, I will agree that that would enrage Well, and it's even more than that, though, because if you were going to boil down the serial killer novels to a fundamental concept, what would it be? The natural man is an enemy to God. Yes, natural man is an enemy (laughs) to God, but you can resist, right? And if they made a film that the point of which at the end was to realize that you cannot resist. If you're born a sociopath, you are a serial killer and you have no choice. To fundamentally, and by the way, putting an asterisk, Dan Wells is stupid for implying otherwise, right? Like, yes. But here's the thing. I would hate that and I would be furious about it. Yes. But I'm not convinced I would call it a bad adaptation. Okay. And I think that's just because you and I are using the word adaptation to mean different things. Yeah. I can say you could make a good film. But Mm -hmm. if it's specifically adaptation, there are things that you need to do. And one of the things an adaptation needs to do is preserve the soul of the original. I think that's more important. The Harry Potter 3, the film, is better than Harry Potter 1, the film. Mm -hmm. But they both preserve the soul of what it means to be Harry Potter. They're both good adaptations. One's a good film and one's a weaker film. Yeah. But they both are saying they're not going and making Harry Potter 3, and the whole point is that wizards are stupid and you shouldn't dream and imagine. (laughs) That would be a terrible adaptation of Harry Potter, no matter how good that film is. If the point of it is you shouldn't dream about Hogwarts, you shouldn't dream about and have imagination, you (laughs) kids should be stomped to the dirt and only do what you're told. Okay, so let's bring this back to I Am Legend. Yes. The, you know, spoiler warnings for this 70-year-old book. I Am Legend, kind of the core idea of that is that a vampirism has infected humanity And it has spread across the land to the point that, as far as he knows, this one guy, Robert, whatever his name is, he is the last human left. Uh Uh-huh. And during the day, when all the vampires are asleep, he does what he can to defend himself. And then at night, all the vampires come out and they try to break into his house and attack him and kill him. And so... He kind of goes out, and during the day, he will hunt for them and try to kill them. While they're sleeping. While they're sleeping. Yeah. 
And then I guess there are different ways to interpret it, but really I think fundamentally what it says at the end is he realizes he has become the monster. Yes. That he has been replaced. There is a new dominant species on the planet and within their own culture, they are good people. Mm -hmm. But for them, he is the boogeyman monster. He is now the vampire and he has to just accept that evolution has passed him by. That aspect and that kind of fundamental realization is absent in every single adaptation, including the Will Smith one. Yes. And I would agree with you that there's an argument here. I think the solitude of being the last person alive mm-hmm. as presented in the story, boy, it's been a while, but I feel that it's there. It is there. And that that soul of that concept is brought forward to the Will Smith movie quite well. I will totally give you that the Will Smith movie, while it is super different in a lot of aesthetic mm-hmm. ways, it is very true to the first half yeah. of the novel, where it presents a lone guy who's completely alone, who is incredibly competent, who is constantly planning in order to stay alive. They capture that really, really well. And so why my argument is that it's not, I agree with you that I Am Legend does not capture the coolest and most fundamental idea of the book which is what has made it an enduring classic which is why you should want to adapt it in the first place well and i'm gonna go as far as to say that the ending Mm -hmm. where they are clearly depicted as bloodthirsty monsters and he just blows them all up no you're wrong yeah that's they all rush his house and he's got the other woman and there's the little girl and everyone's just trying to kill him and he like blows everything up Yes, but there's another ending. You're getting to that, right? Well, then it goes off and there's the lady and the little girl find no, like there's a, another an ending. There's a second ending. You there's know a there's second a second ending? ending to that movie. What is the second ending? You're not joking with me? I'm not joking because when I saw it, it just ended okay. with the little girl and the lady arriving at the survivor yeah. camp. The ending on the DVD that is, and this is- Okay, is this an alternate ending? This is an alternate ending. Because they did film the original book ending or something approximating it, Mm -hmm. but they didn't release it in It's on the DVD. Okay, so Uh, how do do they do it? The monsters come in. He realizes that he has captured one of them to perform tests on that they love, and he lets her go, and they let him go. Okay, why didn't they do that in the theater? They actually say on the DVD that they thought an explosive self-sacrifice was more Hollywood and would give them a better chance of success. You know, it is really gratifying to have my most cynical assumption mm-hmm. proven correct. Yes, <laughs> you are. You are. You are okay. correct. So if mm-hmm. you are watching the alternate ending that was originally filmed and then mm-hmm. focus grouped away from the movie, then yes, they don't betray the book. They don't betray. Okay. But yeah, the one that everyone saw 100% is a betrayal of Richard Matheson's vision and ideas. Is it a betrayal? I mean, if it's showing the opposite thing with the opposite moral, yeah. Mm, the reason I would argue against this, that I think I'm persuaded that you are correct, okay. is that unlike Verhoeven, where he's actively trying to undermine it, mm-hmm. they just don't get it. And okay. they are just making a Hollywood action movie out of this premise. And the thing is, since they filmed both endings, it's hard for me to argue that they don't get it at all. Because the ending they did film still does not capture the whole concept. All that it captures is, wait, these things might have feelings and emotions. Maybe Mm -hmm. we shouldn't be killing them indiscriminately. But that kind of in a, uh, maybe Will Smith and them can make a truce 
rather than, oh, wow, I'm the monster. That's not in that ending. Maybe what we can say is Mm -hmm. that the director clearly understood and then was betrayed by the studio. Perhaps. Now, there's another one I want to talk to you about here. Okay. That I find it's also a Will Smith movie. Ooh. This is iRobot. iRobot. Do you remember iRobot? I do remember iRobot. Okay. So iRobot is kind of in the same realm where it's not openly mocking the source material. Mm -hmm. I just don't think it gets it. If you haven't seen iRobot, iRobot is a story about a detective who, you know, has a kind of case that he does with a robot that he comes to understand this robot has kind of obtained sentience in his life. And Mm -hmm. it works a lot with Asimov's laws. It's based on, you know, Asimov's. Yeah, the three laws of robotics. It takes the title from Asimov's first collection, iRobot, but it shares a bit more with Caves of Steel, which is the second robot series, which is an actual novel rather than a collection of short stories. And it's about a detective and his robot partner. Yeah. It isn't really an adaptation of either one of those, really. It's just an adaptation of the idea loosely. Yeah, it's like they bought the rights to Asimov's entire body Mm -hmm. of work and then cherry-picked a couple of core ideas Yes. And did whatever they wanted with them. Yes. The reason that I bring it up in this conversation is if you've seen any movies with robots or computers, then you will not be surprised to determine that there is a giant computer brain that is evil and has malfunctioned and is doing evil stuff. And it uses the three laws as its justification. Mm-hmm. If you're not familiar, the Eisenhower three laws is this idea of you know, you can't let a human come to harm. You have to obey a human unless it violates law number one. And you must preserve your own life unless it violates one or two. Yeah. And they do some good stuff with three laws in this movie. But at the end, the robot being like, I must become a totalitarian regime controlling every aspect of human existence in order to prevent them from hurting one another to follow the three laws is a natural thing you can get out of the three laws mm-hmm. but it is the fundamental undermining of asimov's entire body of work which the robot stories end with the robots coming to that determination but realizing they can't do that and take away human free will because human free will would be more harmful and they must let a human decide if they can take this step yeah that's the last robot novel is the robot saying hey we've come up with this thing but you need to make the call mm-hmm And what I find most funny about this is Mm -hmm. completely tangential to your point, which is iRobot with Will Smith is basically the same plot as Age of Ultron. Yes. (laughs) To really kind of hilarious degree. Mm -hmm. But the three laws are so fascinating. Yes. And reading the three laws stories, you know, my favorite one is one where there's a robot who's just running in a perfect circle around an outpost that's my favorite and they can't figure out what's going on and eventually realize oh because of the three laws this is actually incredibly understandable and rational behavior and it's all just kind of the mystery of figuring out why it's doing that and i can imagine a world where asimov writes a story where the three laws as they are stated lead a robot to become a totalitarian ruler who won't let humans make any decisions because they might hurt themselves and this Mm -hmm. is the only way that it can understand how to do that. And so this is why it's a sticky one for me, because I can imagine that story. Well, the thing for me, and it's been forever since I've seen the movie, and so Mm -hmm. maybe they have some stupid justification for this, but coming to that decision of we need to take over Mm -hmm. 
is in itself a violation of the second law. Yes. And what is most interesting to me is watching the robots try to keep all three laws at the same time, even when they are in opposition to each other. Yeah. And iRobot, the movie, just kind of throws that out the window. It, it doesn't try. Yeah. It doesn't violate the second law because the second law is superseded by the first law. But it is problem. Mm-hmm. And in the books, the robots come to realize this problem. Yeah. But part of the issue is the framing of the bad guy and the bad guys. Like in the movie, if you watch this movie, robots are a scary evil thing. Mm-hmm. Because this mastermind robot AI has decided they need to control humankind and it's willing to kill to protect the greater good. It's very ends justify the means. And it's a tone thing. Like I can imagine that story where a robot decides this in an Asimov world. Yeah. But but the way the robot would go yeah. about it is very specific and would be governed by the three laws. And yep. in this robots, there's tons of them with eyes turning red that Real Smith has to beat up and destroy and is so fundamentally opposed to the Asmovian vision of robots. In the Asmovian vision, robots are kind of the next evolutionary step of humankind, right? Mm -hmm. We have created something better than ourselves. That is like, you know, and then at the end of the whole robot sequence, they figure out how to help humankind achieve a next level of evolution, but human needs their help. So it's not like humans are just a dead end. Yeah. But robots in this are deific. In mm-hmm. the Asimov oeuvre. 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 In the Asimov oeuvre, they are angelic, bordering on deific, and they are the thing better than us that we've been able to create. Yeah. And the fact that the movie just needs disposable bad guy robots with red eyes that you can destroy yeah. hundreds of just feels so tonally like a undermining. Yeah, it's opposed to the ideas. It's opposed to the tone. Really, what all of these stories keep coming down to is somebody saw this science fiction property as an opportunity to make a quick buck, you know? And this goes back to what we said with Jaws and Star Wars, starting the modern age of kind of adolescent-driven storytelling in Hollywood, that they're like, yeah, we are going to take this thing that is about an idea, and we are going to remove the idea and just make it an exciting action story instead. Yeah, I mean, it's still happening. My biggest complaint about Jurassic World is that it is that, right? Mm-hmm. Jurassic Park, masterpiece. I think we may have gone yeah. over this, so I won't, but Jurassic World, strip out what makes Jurassic Park interesting. Partially, that is Spielberg himself. And just make a giant monster movie. Now, I don't want to be too down on iRobot because I actually think that it's a pretty solid script, even with the kind of generic ending. Will Smith is good in it. It's a solid movie. I would Mm -hmm. not list it very highly in my ranking of all-time favorites, but it is a solid movie. What do you think of, then, the movie that stays fundamentally aligned with Asimov's vision, starring one of the greatest actors of all time and is maybe not a great movie? You know where I'm going, right? Oh, I don't. Bicentennial Man. Oh, man. I've never seen Bicentennial Man. Oh, wow. Okay. You know, it got horrible reviews and everyone hated it okay okay so let's just say (laughs) uh it's not horrible really it's a mess and there's a difference between a mess and horrible okay because a mess has good scenes and has moments of really well done things and horrible is just disaster after disaster okay and i consider bicentennial men to be a mess. Be a mess. It has a beautiful ending that is totally aligned with Asimov's vision for robots. 
It is perfectly done in that one little moment, has otherwise interesting takes on Asimov put together in a mess that's kind of boring and hard to make sense of. Well. Would you uh, rather have an iRobot or would you rather have a Bicentennial Man get made? Oh, man. I don't even know. Which would um, you prefer existing in the universe? What I would prefer existing in the universe is iRobot. Okay. Because every time a Bicentennial Man fails, mm-hmm. then 10 other projects that could have succeeded get jettisoned by the studio. Okay. Because Great they say, argument. oh, look, cerebral science fiction doesn't sell. Mm-hmm. And so then they throw out Solaris or Inception yeah. or mm-hmm. something else. And we never get the good stuff because the bad stuff doesn't make okay. money. That's a wonderful argument that I had not even considered. <laughs> and you're a smart man for making it. Oh, thank you I'm, very much. I'm 100% on board. Because if Bicentennial Man had never been made, maybe someone else would have made a Bicentennial Man or some other Asimov yeah, adaptation. Some, and, you know, maybe that's the the ultimate lesson of Starship Troopers is, you know, he made the crowd-pleasing action movie mm-hmm. and all the grognards and science fiction fans got mad at it, but... It made some money. And did it? Was that a successful movie? I thought uh, it did. Let's let's find out if that was a successful movie because here's the thing. It's not a very good crowd pleaser. That movie <laughs> is so brutally pessimistic and violent and is making fun of the viewer while it's going, which is why we love it, right? Mm-hmm. It's, that's where it's genius Maybe lies. you're right, and it was a failure and it was only a cult like, classic in, maybe, in hindsight. We'll have to see. I'd be curious, but I feel like what? A budget of $100 million, box office of $87 million. See, Ooh, so I'm it was right. a huge failure yes. then. Yes, I'm right, because too violent. Mm-hmm. By spending so much time undermining the ideals of not just the property, but the entire genre, Yeah, right? This is an undermine of action aliens movies. Mm-hmm. The audience goes to it, and it's mismarketed. I 100%... Guarantee it was mismarketed. And oh, yeah. everyone who went to this movie everyone thought, thought they were getting aliens. Thought they were getting aliens, and instead they got a movie. The acting is, I mean, Neil Patrick Harris is great, but he's, he's the one in, who knows everything. the movie he's in. Mm-hmm. Um, the other actors don't know. And so, and they're pretty bad, right? Yeah. Did you call like I'm not going to actively yeah. defend any of them except yes. that Dinah Meyer, I've always liked her. Okay. And I thought she did a good job, but that's yeah. probably because I was 20 years old and she's well, really cute. And the thing is, they don't know the movie they're in. They aren't told the movie they are in. They don't mm-hmm. understand the movie they're in. And it's like Verhoeven wanted bad acting on purpose. And yeah. I, I can't prove it, but I would bet he is taking <laughs> the takes that are more campy, less normal sounding on purpose to make fun of the action genre because mm-hmm. the whole thing is making fun. And so you go to that movie and if you are not wanting hyper-violent takedown of, it's it's like a deconstructionalist perfect movie for deconstructionalist. <laughs> deconstructionalism is the literary theory that talks about, it's a postmodern literary theory that talks about how something will often rely on the very thing that it is and criticizing. Kind of the unknowability of... Yes you know, meaning and things yes. like that. And so you get this movie that needs the hyperviolence in order to make fun of the hyperviolence. And it's really leaning on all of these tropes while making fun of them. And you get an awful audience experience mm-hmm. for that film. Yeah. So here is one of my guiding principles for movie-ness. Mm-hmm. Actually comes from Gene Siskel, the old partner of Ebert. He said that kind of the baseline for a movie that is almost never crossed the baseline for quality 
is that the movie should be more interesting than just filming the same actors having lunch. And <laughs> when you think about it, so many of the movies I love, I bet I would love just as much or even more just watching those same people have lunch and have a conversation with each other. Mm. This is one that I don't think that would be true. And maybe that's because, you know, he was purposefully hiring kind of shallow actors. I don't know. But the things that he is doing and the ways in which he's doing them provide for what is a, a painful experience, but an incredibly interesting, fascinating experience in a kind of bug in a jar kind of way. Yeah. The fact that Verhoeven, like that no one picked up the, this disaster followed by another disaster, Verhoeven disaster, didn't happen earlier. Like he's got to have been in Hollywood being like, have they not figured it out yet? How, Why do they keep giving me money? How, how do they, how have they not, like the audiences haven't. That, you can't really blame them because mm -hmm. the audiences turned out for RoboCop in droves, yeah. which is the same thing, but played a little more sincere. It's like, it's got the sincerity dial turned up just a little bit. You mm -hmm. care about the character. It's not as campy. It's not as campy. It has a brilliant ending. So the plotting and pacing is a little stronger, but it is the same thing. It's making fun of, if you're not in on it, you are the joke yeah. for RoboCop. Mm -hmm. And it made a ton of money. And so it's like, oh, I guess people like Verhoeven movies. Here's some more ton of money. Do that again. But it was a time bomb waiting to explode. Mm -hmm. And he just went over the top. RoboCop is really fascinating to me because it falls into the category of movies that are unironically loved by the exact people that the movie hates. Yes. And Fight Club is Fight another Club's one. Fight Club's the other one. Yep. And I'm sure we could come up with some other ideas, but yeah, there are people who get it and who find it interesting. And then there are people who Dunning-Kruger themselves into, you know, deeply loving and evangelizing something that is, you know, undermining the core principles of their life, I guess, to use the terminology we've already been using. I um, had a nice long conversation recently about Fight Club because I don't really like Fight Club, but I appreciate it. Okay. If that makes sense. No, that, that's very fair. Yeah. Like I legitimately love Seven, which is by the same director. But Fight Club, I get, but I don't love. And I was talking about it with a mutual friend of ours who had just seen it for the first time and actually turned it off halfway through. He's like, this is just too much for me. And I'm like, mm. totally fair, oh, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. 100%. Fight Club, it is one of those movies. You just turn off. Yeah, go ahead. Turn off Fight yeah. Club. But he's like, it just is upholding a worldview that I cannot conscionably support mm -hmm. was kind of the main concept. And Fight Club is weird in that it is hard to see it other ways. I don't think it's Dunning-Kruger on that one, right? Like Fight Club really feels like and I know it's not, and I yeah. appreciate that it's not, but it really feels like, not on a surface level, but like three levels down, <laughs> that it is upholding the ideas that it seems to be upholding. And so it is a weird film in that regard. It, it, it is. Uh, it is a good one to talk about with adaptation as well, because yeah. the book is very different, mm -hmm. but only a couple of degrees different. Yeah, And those degrees are meaningful, and they're important. And the ending is very different but only in certain ways i don't know what i'm trying to uh, explain with this the movie means something and has a message that is very different from the books but mm -hmm. it is still very true to the book yeah and so it's one where the adaptation basically just picked 
one of the truths that mm -hmm. were hiding in there and went all in on it. And so they're not undermining things, even though it has a, a very different ending. Here's a little funny bit of trivia for you. I watched Seven with my wife on our honeymoon. <laughs> <laughs> that... <laughs> and she had never seen anything like that before. Because oh, wow. my wife, does, let's just say her media exposure doesn't have the dynamic range that perhaps my media exposure has, shall we say. And she had never seen anything at all like Seven before. Well, I mean, to be fair, very few of us have yes. ever seen anything like Seven yep. before. Seven is interesting <laughs> because my wife, uh -huh. like yours, is not really a horror movie person. Yes. Despite what I write, she doesn't lean into the really dark stuff. Mm -hmm. She absolutely adores Seven. See, here's the thing. Emily loved it, too. She absolutely <laughs> loved it because it is so good. Yeah, right? it's really good. It is one of the few movies that I'd say is genuinely brilliant. Yeah. that The ideas behind them and the way those ideas are conveyed. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not espousing those ideas in any way yes. <laughs> because it's, it's a relentlessly dark movie. Yes. Although I will also say that it is an incredibly hopeful movie. In some ways. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. The character arc of Morgan Freeman. Okay. Like, I suppose. His entire character arc is, I got to get out of this city. Uh -huh. Everything's screwed up. You know, his new young partner, you know, mm -hmm. you and your young wife, you got to get out of here before this job beats you down. And then at the end of it, he's like, you know, I'm going to stick around. There's still some good that I can do in this city. And so- That's a way to find the silver lining <laughs> in that, I suppose, there's an argument there. Mm -hmm. I, I just love it because the script is so well, well yeah. done. It's really good. Like a, a really tightly woven, well done. Big surprise. Brandon likes when an ending ties together a ah, bunch of ah. narrative threads that look like they might just be loose threads, but then pull tightly into a really and sharp everything bow. Everything works. Mixed with, you know, great shots, really good acting. I yeah. mean, but so there you go. You guys probably, I don't <laughs> think that if you would have asked my fans, to name something about me that they would have ever picked up that Brandon showed his wife seven on his honeymoon. But let's be honest, it was on, right? It was on. It and was this on. was back in the day when you watched what when was on. When you watched what was on. We were on the cruise ship. They had, you know, various channels. It was watch that or watch. Or walk yep. around the stupid yep. pool deck for and, the 97th time. And it was on. And it's a really good movie. And we followed it up by watching March of the Penguins to give us a different type of Morgan Freeman experience. Also, it's an equally depressing one yes. in a lot of ways. Yep. So we watched, a, we watched March of the Penguins on a family vacation. When we lived in Germany, uh -huh. we went to Paris and we got this little like Airbnb vacation apartment thing. And they had some CDs in the thing. And so one night we're like, oh, what should we watch? And I didn't know how depressing March of the Penguins yeah. was. And the kids grabbed it like, this one's about penguins. It'll be fun. Yeah. It's not it happy not feet. Fun. It's not happy feet. Yeah. Hey, remember when uh, this podcast episode was about zombies? Yeah, we're going to have to do a podcast on, zo yeah, on zombies. Yeah, because we only very tangentially touched on them. I think and this only episode, if you assume yeah. that the I Am Legend vampires were actually zombies. Right. Which a lot of people do. Yes. That was our only connection to zombies. It really was. <laughs> well, then, thank you very much for listening to our podcast about zombies. We hope you've learned a lot about zombies and their many varieties and the many ways in which art can use zombies as a metaphor uh, to explore the human condition. 